0: Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, there is a major flaw in Joomla and vBulletin you need to know about. The first remote administration trojan that targets Windows, the Mac, Linux, and Android hits the web, and the protecting your privacy online from some individuals who, let's just say, are extremely motivated to protect theirs. Then it's a great big batch of your questions, a rockin' roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi everyone and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 240 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly Systems Network and Administration Podcast. We stream this episode live on November 5th, 2015. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about these great sponsors as this here show goes on. Oh, our live stream that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. I I think you should probably go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher. Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan.
1: Hey, Chris, everybody. Thanks for tuning in.
0: Hello, sir. Hello, sir. So I have to be honest with you. I think we have a jam-packed show today. A lot of things to cover, and the third news story, Probably going to make some folks blush. I love it. So there is tons of stuff, plus some really good questions. And the roundup this week, there's a few stories that we both wanted to talk about. Because we, we were doing more. It doesn't happen that often, but we were like, well, I have that link as well. I have this link as well for the roundup. Uh, so some really good stories in the roundup that, honestly, if, you know, if we wanted to, we could probably pull them up into the main show. But we're going to get to those in a little bit. So, Alan, why don't we start with the first story of coming from Avast. What's this about?
1: Uh, So this is the first uh, RAT Trojan, or remote administration Trojan, uh, that has payloads that work for Android, Linux, Mac, and Windows. Nice. It's called OmniRAT because it works on all the different operating systems. Uh, And kind of an interesting story, back on Friday, Avast discovered OmniRAT, a program similar to DroidJack, uh, which is an Android-specific one. Um, which is a program that facilitates remote spying and recently made the news uh, when European law enforcement agencies made arrests and raided the homes of suspects as part of an international malware investigation into uh, the Droid Jack.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so OmniRat and Droidjack are rats, or remote administration tools, that allow you to gain remote administrative control of any Android device. What makes OmniRat special is that it can also give you control of a Windows, Linux, or Mac machine as well. Yeah. Uh, the remote administrative control means that once the software is installed on the target device, you have full control as if you were the user. Or depending on uh, how compromised the device is, you might actually have more access than the person who owns the device. Huh. Uh, on their website, OmniRat lists all the things you can do once you have control of an Android <laughs> device, <laughs> nice. which includes receiving detailed information about their services and processes running on the device, Viewing and deleting their browsing history, making calls or sending SMS messages to any number, uh, recording the audio, executing commands on the device, and anything else you might want to do. Hmm. I so say, like DroidJack, OmniRat can be purchased online. But compared to DroidJack, it's a bargain. Oh, good. Whereas DroidJack uh, costs $210 a uh, copy, OmniRat is only $25 or okay. 50 depending on which devices you want to take control of. Not bad. Uh, What's interesting is, if it has support for Mac, I wonder if we might see it getting support for iOS. Hmm. Uh, They say, A custom version of OmniRat is currently being spread via social engineering. A user on a German tech forum, a tech board online, uh, described how a rat was spread to his Android device via an SMS message. Uh, After researching incidents, Avast has come to the conclusion that the variant of OmniRat was being used in the attack. Basically, the... uh, Author of the post on the forum received an SMS message stating that an MMS message, a picture message, from someone was sent to him. Uh, In the example, it was a German message and German phone number. But uh, the SMS goes on to say, you know, this uh, multimedia message cannot be sent to you because of the Android uh, stage fright vulnerability, which is a thing. Like, I've (laughs) actually got a message from my phone company about being careful with the MMSs because of stage fright and so on, right? Okay. And so, if all of a sudden you get one that says, Well, the, there's this MMS, but we blocked it because it might be bad. If you actually want it, you know, here's a URL. Uh, it says, To access the MMS within three days, click the bit.ly link uh, with your telephone number and enter the PIN code. Uh, once the link is opened, a site loads where you are asked to enter the code from that SMS message along with your phone number. Once you enter your phone number and the code, an APK called MMS E random numbers. Sounds legit to is, me is downloaded onto your Android device. Uh, Then uh, once that's installed, it loads a message onto the phone saying that the MMS uh, settings have been successfully modified and adds an icon labeled MMS Retrieve onto the desktop of the phone. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you uh, open it and it takes over your machine. The OmniRat APK requires the users to give OmniRat access to many permissions, including Editing text messages, uh, reading call logs and contacts, modify or delete content of the SD card, and you know all of these permissions may seem a bit invasive, uh, and you may be thinking you know why would anyone give apps such access? But you know most of the trusted apps uh, that you might download from the Google Play Store request all those same permissions. You know it's a little ridiculous the permissions that even like the Twitter app wants to have, and so on. Uh, the key difference is the source of the app. You know to make sure you uh, get apps. Legitimately, from the Google Play Store. And there's less chance. Definitely. Not no chance, but less chance yeah. that they're crazy. Uh, the victim has no idea their va- device is being controlled by someone else and that every move they make on the device is being recorded and sent back to a foreign server. Sounds awful. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, once cyber criminals have control over a device's contact list, they can easily spread the malware to more people. Uh, you know, The social engineering side of it works a lot better when it's coming from a person that you, your contact list on your phone recognizes, Right. You know, if you, if you get a text message from someone that you actually know, you're more likely to click on the link than when it comes from an unidentified number, right?
0: I would say you're almost guaranteed to click it. Reg- yeah. Regardless of who you are, how savvy you think you are, if you get a message from somebody in your peer group uh, with a link... And you, it's
1: well-formed. And, as yeah. long as the
0: link looks even semi-legit, I'm clicking it.
1: Yeah. Uh, right. So in a, a, inside the variant of OmniRap, there's a function to send multiple SMS messages... What makes it especially dangerous is that the SMS spread via OmniRat from the infected device will be you know, appear to be from a known and trusted person. And then that makes you more likely to click on it. Yeah, right. And uh, Softpedia on their website has uh, a video of a uh, phone being compromised. Really? Just a little scroll down there. All right, yeah,
0: yeah. Okay, there's the... There's uh, the there's oh, yeah, there's okay. There's the video. <laughs> play video. All right, are you ready? Yep. I'm going to play video. I don't know if there's any audio with it or not, though. Let's see. doesn't appear to be.
1: Ah, so this is a using, on, on a Windows machine, using the tool to control a phone.
0: And we have already two packages. And it looks like I see an Android remote desktop up, too.
1: Yeah. Uh, you might want to fast forward a bit because apparently this video is 30 minutes. Yeah, it is. Holy so smokes. we just skip a bit, we can actually see them taking over the phone.
0: Uh, yeah, over here he's changing the audio devices.
1: See Yeah, that? I'm setting the ringer mode. Yeah. So you can see how you could use this uh, if you took over somebody's phone like this, obviously it makes it much easier to you know, use their online banking app or something, but uh, you could use this as part of a bigger compromise on a person. Sure. Where, you know, if they're, uh, you steal their credit card and their phone companies or their uh, bank is going to call them
0: here, here, and ask, this you know,
1: is this, is this a legitimate charge?
0: He's replacing the Facebook uh, program with a fake one. He just went and got the Facebook icon off of Google Images and now he's updating uh, the launcher. See that? So he just sent a push notification saying Facebook and password mismatch. So now the user taps that
1: and types in their real Facebook password. Right, and see so it even had and the boom. right even
0: even had a Facebook icon, so it looks branded. It looks legit, right? Yeah, yeah. So this is pretty intense, actually. Yeah, there he is pulling in history. Fascinating stuff, Alan.
1: Mm-hmm. uh the Softpedia article about omnirat includes a video but declines to post uh a link to the tools website where you could buy it for twenty five dollars mm. uh but you could easily find that with Google <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it's not gonna take long huh and uh uh the patch is what fix um stage fright
1: well in this case it's don't install this random so, oh, APK. Oh, because the
0: user installed the APK. Right,
1: gotcha. it, it just used stage fright to convince the user to do it. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Right? Yeah. It's trend-jacking, like we talked about before. Mm-hmm. Everybody's all of a sudden aware of this stage fright. You can use it to trick people into doing things. Yeah. Very much. so. And it turns out that stage, the hype about stage fright may cause more phones to be compromised than actual stage fright.
0: So, and, and what are your thoughts on? I mean, it. It seems inevitable in a sense, but what are your thoughts on um, malware that one, one author creates a piece of malware that goes Windows, Linux, and Android? So you can control, so in theory, from one management dashboard, you can control all those platforms.
1: Yep. Uh, it makes it much easier to take over a whole company or something, right?
0: Yeah. Uh, and it makes you wonder how they do that development-wise. Did one person create all those different versions, or did different people work on the different platforms? How was this team structured that created this malware yeah. like this?
1: It's oh. it's been fifteen years since I wrote a rat.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know I, that was the other thing I was thinking of is I can't I can't remember the last time I heard it called rats either.
1: Oh well, no, that be, I know. It's I just talked, it's talked just, about them on the show all the time.
0: And what I mean is, I guess I said that the wrong way. What I mean is that is a term that to me goes back a long, long, long ways. And yes, so
1: remember, like uh, net bus and yes. back orifice.
0: Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> uh,
1: but I, in high school, I wrote my own. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, and. Uh, we used, uh, got the school's permission to install it on all of the machines. That sounds... Because, because I give the teachers one version of the control panel, right? Which had like uh-huh. eight functions. Uh-huh. Uh, then there was my version of the control panel. It uh-huh. had like 25 functions. <laughs> Hell. <Hey-o.
0: laughs> Very nice. Yeah. That sounds like something I might have done back in the day. Mm-hmm. All right, any other thoughts on that story? Uh, no. Okay. All right. Well, then I'll tell you about something I got some thoughts on. That's DigitalOcean. Go over to DigitalOcean.com and use our promo code SNAPOcean to get a $10 credit. You, if you haven't heard about DigitalOcean, let me blow your mind a little bit. It's here. It finally has arrived. Your infrastructure on demand that is incredibly, incredibly well-priced, very fast, and very easy to work with. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and the easy way for you to spin up your own server up in the cloud. You can get started in less than 55 seconds. That's legit, too. Less than 55 seconds to get a server spun up, think about that. That is faster than I could honestly do it with VirtualBox. It's great. And for $5 a month, that's the pricing plans where they start at. Remember, SnapOcean gives you a $10 credit and supports the show. But for $5 a month, You get 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, because they're all SSDs, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. (laughs) That's just, for $5 a month, that completely blows my mind. And they have data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London. Brand new ones in Germany and Toronto. And I love the DigitalOcean interface. Simple, intuitive control panel. Let's you deploy Fedora or Debian or Ubuntu or CoreOS, CentOS, or even FreeBSD with entire applications deployed on top of it or just the bare OS, and that simple interface allows you to do backups, one-click application deployments, transferred between data centers or transferring between user accounts, managing your payments, your DNS, your snapshots. It is so well done. And on top of all of that, they have a straightforward API, and there's a lot of really good apps you can take advantage of or write your own. Use our promo code SnapOcean to go check them out. And while you're over there too, check out their community section. They have a lot of good tutorials. Like, here's one how to run Nginx in a Docker container on Ubuntu 14.04. This tutorial shows you how to deploy Nginx in a Docker container. (laughs) <laughs> I did. Alan says, don't do it. Go deploy in a free BSD jail on DigitalOcean. Yes. There you go. <laughs> Alan,
1: I, I'm, I'm quite sure they have a tutorial for that on there. You just have to find
0: yeah, it. Yeah. Well, that's really actually they have a... The, so they they actually pay for the tutorials, which is great. If you're a technical writer, you yeah, have some abilities. It
1: leads to much better tutorials than you find on yeah. Google.
0: <laughs> and when they rolled out free BSD support, a whole bunch of tutorials went out with it too. So you can definitely check that out and you can play around with it with the promo code SnapOcean. All you got to do is to get started by going over to DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code SnapOcean so that way our show gets credit for it. You keep the TechSnap program going, and you get to try out DigitalOcean for free for two months. DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code SnapOcean. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Alan, uh, a lot of people use Joomla. Sometimes people use Joomla sort of just as like a back-end management system, and they have something sitting on top of it. And sometimes people have a very obvious, you know, this is a Joomla template website, it's clear. But it has got to be one of the, I don't know if it's probably not the most, but it's got to be in the top five it's CMS definitely systems. up
1: there with, with, you know, Drupal and, and WordPress. Yeah, uh, for sure. So that's why least... this next
0: story is kind of relevant.
1: Yeah. There are at least 2.8 million Joomla sites on the internet.
0: Whoa. Okay. All right. So, what's going on?
1: So, Joomla, one of the most popular web platforms other than WordPress, has a critical flaw that affects millions of sites. Basically, there's an SQL injection attack that was discovered Mm. that affects versions 3.2 through version 3.4.4. Unrestricted administrative access to a website's database can cause disastrous effects ranging from complete theft of the data, loss or corruption of the data, uh, uh, or through obtaining complete remote control of the web server and abusing it or repurposing it for instance I could in you know stick an iframe into the website that would infect all the visitors or I could use uh, secretly you know create a subdirector or something and use it to host malware mm-hmm. uh, or you know other criminal content or whatever or it could also end in the infiltration into the internal network of the organization right if I can compromise your web server I might be able to you know, island hop from that web server to somewhere else in the network and then go from there and on and on and on. Or, you know, install, uh, do the m- malware iframe thing in the admin panel. So next time someone f- uh, with a computer inside yeah. the company on this the protected that would be network, super valuable. network, Yes. Uh logs in, their machine gets infected, and then I can hop to that machine, and then I'm inside the trusted network and I can go all over.
0: That would be definitely worth it. Mm-hmm.
1: So there are three CVEs. So they found at least three different uh, specific problems in Joomla. Uh, and they say they've tested and found that the exploit works against a number of large websites representing a bunch of different business verticals. So it's not only people using like a certain module of Joomla or something. It's in the base Joomla. Um, so they say we encourage site administrators to update their Joomla installation immediately or at least deploy a third-party protection product or at the very least, take their site down until a proper solution can be found. Interestingly, they also cite a uh, Verizon database breach investigation report that says that 99.9% of exploited vulnerabilities uh, were compromised more than a year after the CVE was published.
0: Jeez, negligence, negligence, negligence.
1: Yeah, so not patching your system will almost guarantee it'll be hacked. You know, if, if the if a year after the CVE, you were still vulnerable, there's 99.9% chance you were hacked. Yeah, wow. Uh, so they have a quick timeline. They found the problem uh, at some point. Then they gave uh, disclosed it to Joomla's security team on October 15th. Uh, on October 19th, Joomla acknowledged it. On the 22nd, the patch came out. And so on the 30th... Uh, you know, So we talked briefly about it last week, but uh, now we have the details. So uh, on the 30th, they... Uh, Disclosure was published by Perimeter X, the company that did the research. So they even uh, show some of the code further down there. Uh, So it turns out that, um, you know, because Joomla is so object oriented and and meant to be so pluggable and expandable and so on, it has all this framework for everything. Sure. And so because it uses, you know, model view controller or whatever, all the user input is supposed to be sanitized before it gets to the database part. Uh, but as you can see from that the little bit of code they show there, where they've highlighted certain parts, that they have exceptions for the limit parameter, uh, which is used to set you know how many uh, records you want back from the SQL statement, mm-hmm. and they just pass that value through completely unmodified or unrestricted, uh, ah. and so they can they just tack that on to the end of the SQL statement, so you can write whatever you want in there, you know. Uh, put a semicolon and then write entire statements or whatever. And it turns out that uh there's also a problem with the select uh parameter, which you normally use to set which columns you want to get back. Uh and that was originally done up so that you know when you're doing an SQL join, you could choose which fields from which databases you actually wanted. Uh but it's uh wide open <coughs> there. <laughs> it's just it's buried because of the level of uh not obfuscation, but just abstraction that happens, right? Like where you kind of build the database query is so far away from where it actually turns into a a query that gets run that it's hard to see that in the middle somewhere one part wasn't happening so that by the time you get all the way to the end, the limit isn't, you know, strictly what it's supposed to be. It could have other stuff in it. Yeah, huh. Uh, You know, one of the the interesting thing is that the limit or select uh, column, things are one of the most obvious and ubiquitous SQL injection vectors right because if you uh, normally the limit you could just limit it to a number but if you're doing pagination you have to allow a comma right to say Mm. you know give me 100 results but start at you know result 500 if I'm on the fifth page or whatever Uh, and so without proper sanitization that happens and too often they just allow whatever the user specifies to get through um They'll say, uh, using this SQL injection, uh, we could extract all the users, reset password tokens, (laughs) sessions, or other configuration (laughs) data stored in the database. (laughs) This will ultimately allow an attacker to obtain admin credentials and therefore control the server's PHP code using the edit theme interface to inject whatever code they want, effectively compromising the entire server. So, yeah, so while you can, you know, you could go in there and dump out the whole database and and see uh, all the hashes of everybody's password, what you could do is overwrite the hash for one of the admin users with a hash you happen to know the password for. Oh. Uh, and then you can log in. Right? You've just reset their password to your chosen password. See. Or you could just create an entirely new admin user because right? changing their password might d- make it detectable for them. Whereas if you just make up a new user with you know, an innocent sounding name or whatever uh, and make it administrator, they might not notice that. And, you know, extract all the hash passwords so you can start brute forcing them, which will come up a bit later uh, in the roundup when we talk about some advances there. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, yeah. This vulnerability is a classic example of how having a too dynamic code base can reflect very severely on security. I expect this disclosure will stir up a hornet's nest regarding the system's dynamic nature and a bunch more vulnerabilities in Joomla will likely be found and maybe exploited uh, in the future. So, you know, if you have Joomla on top of updating it as quickly as possible, uh, you probably want to set up a, a procedure and a workflow for updating it often because for the next little while, it's probably going to get a bunch of similar things fixed. <laughs> I
0: was just thinking that.
1: Uh, you know, when you develop a very Hi, complex David. system, keep in mind that although your design is convenient for other developers, uh, is it convenient for security researchers, right? Uh in this case Joomla is so abstracted that it's very hard to follow it all to, to find the obvious vulnerabilities that are there. Right,
0: point well and, mm-hmm.
1: yeah mm-hmm. If one. it had been designed differently, uh, you know, it might have made writing the plugin slightly harder, but it would make auditing the program that much easier. Yeah, and It's kind of a trade-off there.
0: Yeah, and you know, when I reflect back on what we've wanted to do as a business, every time we look at the website I think, how can I make it simpler and how can I make it simpler not just from a management standpoint but from an upkeep standpoint because yep. I think the reason why a lot of businesses and even individuals go with something like Joomla or Drupal or WordPress or Ghost or whatever is because they don't want to spend time managing the website and the system, they either want to focus on the content or the business. Like jupiterbroadcasting.com as a website is, a, in my opinion, a necessary evil. If, if like I could just flip a switch and everything was done like just really the way I want, everybody would just either have an RSS feed or they would watch on YouTube or iTunes or whatever, I wouldn't even need a website. You know, like, we get people that contact us, and they're like, well, can we buy advertising on your website? And I'm thinking, gosh, I'd like to not even have a website. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, because really it's – so that's why we use a CMS, because it allows us to generate a website without investing a lot of time. And so by that very nature, it means I'm the kind of user who also – doesn't want to have to invest in something very complex that requires a lot of management and patching so when i think about our website i think well how can i simplify and streamline so that way there's less attack surface there's less things for me to have to manage less things to me for me to have to even worry about that's and i think a lot of people who use joomla are probably in that same boat and i i wonder if we are at peak cms maybe Maybe not, but I wonder if people look at it and go, let's simplify a little bit let's let's reduce because also, what has been like the biggest thing that's been a hindrance to people having like really great mobile sites or being really responsive? It's been all well, these old CMSs with these old themes take a while to adapt it's, it's I don't know It's interesting to see if that'll change over time
1: yeah, but I I have a custom CMS and it's terrible.
0: Yeah, that's true. There is uh, that. Yeah, build your own thing is but, awful. It's but just then awful. again,
1: you know, uh, the one we use at BSD now is super simple, and it works very well. If if the people posting stuff to your websites no are fine down. with Unix command line. Mm.
0: <laughs> well, and what was the right? name of it again?
1: Uh, it's a customized version of Pico CMS. Yeah, Pico CMS.
0: All right, Alan. Any other thoughts on that story? Uh, nope. Let me tell you about our friends over at IX Systems. In fact, I encourage you to visit ixsystems.com/techsnap. You can get our TechSnap landing page to support this show. And also you can download their white paper on the ultimate guide to buying a new server for open source. A lot of places now are replacing proprietary, commercial, complex, expensive stacks with open source solutions. But as this transition is being made, There are some companies that are way better equipped to handle this than other companies. There are some companies that have a very deep understanding of the technology you're going to be using, and other companies that consider it a feature box that they check. IX Systems is that differentiator. They understand the technology deeply. They are, a lot of times, some of the people behind that technology, either from a Financing standpoint, community involvement standpoint, or very often the people who develop the very important critical infrastructure you're relying on work at IX Systems. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. I want you to go there. Also, consider their Mission Complete campaign. If you've had a successful deployment, go check out IXSystems.com slash Mission Complete and tell them your story, a free NAS story or a true NAS story. How did FreeBSD or PCBSD or maybe even PFsense save the day? in
1: general. Yeah. You know, they're, they're interested in ZFS, so even if it's ZFS on Linux... It still <laughs> qualifies to win a prize. He says
0: begrudgingly, but it is very true. Your Linux success stories are also very welcome. ixsystems.com slash mission complete. Mess. Right. <laughs> yes. Uh, and also you can tweet them. If you just got a short one, uh, just tweet them. Hashtag mm-hmm. mission complete. This is fun. But I we th- want, like, big war stories. I yeah, I to do. This. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they're gonna, uh, winning entries are going to be selected based on creativity, technical merit, and sincerity. Remember that. ixsystems.com slash TechSnap. Go check them out. They're pretty cool. And I didn't get a chance to make it to Segal 2015, which was just in my backyard, so I felt really bad about it. But uh, Michael Dexter did, and they have a post up on their blog. Mm-hmm. We mentioned this uh, last week. Go check it out. ixsystems.com slash TechSnap.
1: I was uh, hanging out with Michael Dexter earlier this week at the uh, FreeBSD vendor summit where ix had a big presence. You know, Matt Olander and uh, Brett Davis were there, and, uh, you know, we talked about. The Interesting things coming up, and, nice. and also what things need to get done. And
0: Yeah, very cool. Lots of stool stuff. IX Systems, check them out. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. I've worked with a lot of hardware vendors in my years, and I honestly wish I knew about IX Systems a lot earlier than I did. I'm, I'm glad there. I know about them now.
1: I remember uh, if you go back way back in TechSnap to like double digit episodes, when I built my first ZFS server, all the problems I had there, if I had just known to call ix
0: i know right that that's very true
1: so much headache and yeah. so much money and money that's yeah. the part that really gets me mm-hmm. is that it also would have been cheaper mm-hmm. it's very true it's like for for all the pain they save you you'd be willing to pay more <laughs> but you don't have
0: to you don't it's really that's the surprising thing about it check yeah. them out ixsystems.com slash tech Okay, Alan, when it goes to personal protection of privacy and my security and my online identity, it actually kind of makes sense that I might turn to cam girls or at least something along that. I love this I love this next story, Alan, how the world's newest yes. porn stars protect their privacy online.
1: Yes. Uh, so it turns out that, you know, uh, not the typical type of thing you would expect us to be covering on TechSnap, but uh, if you want to maintain your privacy online, it helps to get advice from people who really need to do that very motivated Uh, to do it and other than you know getting information from dissidents and so on who are actively being uh sought by governments to be killed or whatever uh these are the next most experienced people that i can think of very true good point (laughs) women already have to deal with more crap when they're online uh but cam girls often receive the worst of it and so they've you know developed uh advice uh, that they give to newer cam girls to help them deal with it and a lot of this advice would apply to regular people as Makes well. Makes
0: sense actually. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: but you know with modern technology comes modern problems right and we've seen like swatting and doxing and you know the fact that on uh, certain websites you know we've kind of had this problem on the podcast recently uh, there's a large chat window right by the video and anyone can say whatever they want in it and you know you have to deal with that too. So he pulls up the chat room.
0: Yeah, just making the point. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah.
1: You know. But whereas, you know, if people can find out who you are or where you are, then they can do all sorts of nasty things, right? You know, we've had people threaten to try to, you know, order 10 pizzas and send them to your house and all kinds of crazy things. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. So most performers online, even if they're not necessarily in porn, uh, have an alias or something they use. Uh, Or, you know, even just people that are. Hackers and so on. and don't want to get caught. Have an alias. Uh, I knew and Alan so the, Jude
0: was a fake name.
1: Yeah. Uh, so for them, the first step is to protect their true identity. Uh, and but the other thing is that they also wish to keep their location secret, right? That can be whether that's just for personal privacy or if it comes down to being, you know, a matter of your safety. Uh, so they have some examples of the way that your location could be revealed that you might not think of. Pandora, the popular online music streaming service, uses location-based advertising. And they do this based on the zip code that you enter. But they also in your profile display you know approximately where you live based on that zip code. Uh, and so that can give away a lot of information. So maybe you should enter a fake one. Hmm. Stops the tracking ads a little bit and also avoids giving away that information. Uh, you know, Many other sites use location-based advertising based on your IP address. So right. you might want to use a VPN just always, basically, to uh, mask your IP address. And quote here, uh, speaking of VPNs, use one. Uh, if you use Skype, there are Skype resolvers out there that can show your IP address by simply entering uh, your username. And then, you know, we've had problems with that on TextNet before where mm-hmm. they were trying to, you know, denial a service attack mm-hmm. to, to mess up the show. Uh, but, you know, you can consider that in that case too. Uh, And whether that's, you know, because they're trying to get your IP to find out who you are or to... Anyway, anyway. Uh, apparently Amazon wish lists will even reveal which town you live in. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's why people should use P.O. boxes or stuff if they're going to have a public Amazon wish list. You know, that could even just apply to open source developers or something. They say uh, people can uh, simply call Amazon or the shipper... Uh, if you're using some other wish list or whatever, to find the address that their purchase was sent to, if they pry hard enough, you know does, we don't know what Amazon's policy on that is, but it has happened before and can likely happen again. So even maybe it was just a bit of social engineering. If I bought something off your wish list, I could find out what address it got shipped to.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. Uh, I also have an interesting one that came off Twitter: is the cam opsec tip. Uh, I know craft beers are delicious but they circumscribe your location to a very tight circle. Right? If you're having yeah. a... Stop tweeting about beer, that great
0: beer you're drinking. <laughs>
1: well, if it's just you know, craft beer where it's only available in, like, this small area, then that really does uh, kind of give away where you are. Uh, also, make sure photos that you post online do not have GPS or location metadata or geotagging included. Uh, there was an interesting one back, I think, of 2012 or so. Uh, maybe even before, but... Uh, In Afghanistan, they had some new uh, AH AH-64 helicopters in, right? And uh, somebody took a picture and tweeted it or something, right, of these new helicopters landing at the base. Yeah. And the bad guys got the GPS coordinates off the picture and launched a mortar attack against the base and damaged four of the new helicopters. Jeez. Before they got to be used. (laughs) So, you know, that that was one of the military examples of OPSEC, but the same thing can apply elsewhere, right? Uh also, uh, one that came from the the dark net, actually was uh, even you know small talk things like the weather. If you talk about the weather every day uh, on IRC or something, then that can very make it rather easy for someone to narrow down exactly where you live by just looking at where the weather was that each of those hmm. different samples they have.
0: Hmm. Right?
1: You wouldn't think of the weather as being something that would give away your location and, and ruin your privacy, but it can. Uh, And then they mentioned things like, you know, uh, especially for the cam girls, make sure you don't go to your P.O. box alone because there might be someone waiting there for you, especially if you publicly reveal uh, your P.O. box address and or specifically say when you're going to go there. Uh, Something like that actually happened. The uh, FreeBSD security officer uh, was visiting family uh, in another country. And uh, when they returned home, their car had been stolen and their house had been uh, broken into and a bunch of their personal documents and other things have been stolen. Yes. Uh, and it's possible that the bad guys knew when the, they were going to be out of town because of a Facebook or Twitter post or something. Right?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Uh, they also mentioned you know, Google voice numbers uh, so that even if you're texting or using apps or whatever, it doesn't have your real phone number. Uh Interesting one is do not accept gift cards as payment towards your service from random people as they may be able to track how you spent it or where you had things shipped to or where, you know, if they bought you a Walmart gift card, they could maybe tell which Walmart you used it at or something. You know, to be
0: honest with you, the whole gift card, the Amazon wish list, and those kinds of things sound like really common mistakes that people Mm -hmm. would make in this industry.
1: Yeah, or even if you're just a podcaster, you know, you could have the same problems. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm. You were lucky enough to think of it ahead of time when you had people send you what, beer for beer's tasty or whatever when you had the P.O. box or something. Yeah. Uh, Although but,
0: you know, uh, I kind of in a. I'm in a kind of a. I'm in kind of a nice position in the sense that I'm not a. I'm not a cam girl, right? I don't really care if people know where the studio is anymore. I we the studio address is public. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, I uh, uh, I would just I probably maybe wouldn't have that luxury if you know. Mm-hmm. Well, if I was taking my shirt off to do these podcasts, which may happen one day, and it might change my mind. I mean, what? What? Nothing. Anyways, continue on.
1: <laughs> right, but, you know, the other uh, cases where this stuff applies, not just... Yes, for yes. Uh, so one of the specific things was uh, use a separate browser for work and personal internet use to ensure that cookies and logins don't get contaminated, especially if you have multiple Google or multiple Facebook accounts. Right, uh, you don't want to. You want to avoid creating an intersection where the two identities can be correlated as, oh, those are actually the same person, because you accidentally posted something with the wrong account, or just because you know a cookie sees you log in from two different places at once, or anything like that. Right. Uh, so using two different browsers means it's, you have this harder separation in your mind and on your computer of right. you know separate cookie jars and everything. On top of, you know, the regular stuff of erasing cookies. and You all know, the I, to I do that for work,
0: too. Like, I have a browser that is logged into all of my work stuff, and then I have a personal browser that's logged into my personal stuff, and I use mm-hmm. different browsers depending on what I'm doing.
1: Yeah, well, I even have that just to make sure I don't pay for things with the wrong PayPal account.
0: <laughs> that's good, because if you do and then have to pull the payment back and, then, tr- the and then pay again, PayPal reviews that almost every single time and they hold payments. It's a real pain in the butt.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, it, mostly in that case I basically have to do all the paperwork to pay myself back or whatever Yeah, and, or pay the business back when I use it the wrong way, so yeah. Uh, you know, especially consider things like Facebook and Google, when you're logged into those they can kind of track you all over the internet and so uh, keeping your public profile and your private profile separate can help a lot with that. Uh, and uh, also, you know, Consider changing your alias that you use online on a regular basis. Hmm. You, know, you have to balance you know, building a reputation against operational security. You know, uh, that advice mostly came from the darknet stuff where you know, you're trying to remain anonymous. Uh, well, you can't both remain, remain anonymous and build a reputation at the same time. Right. right? Uh, and that's why I've seen some interesting things like uh, if you're going to release open source source code, but you want to remain anonymous. You leave the copyright to like a SHA-256 hash of something. Uh, and then you could use later, you could prove that it was you if you need to. But it's not obvious that it's you until you decide to prove it. Hmm. Uh, and then the last one, of course, is use strong passwords and do not reuse passwords for multiple sites. And use two-factor authentication whenever possible. Always a classic. Although that can get extra complicated if you're trying to manage two separate accounts for something. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah, but that's always classic advice. Always good classic advice. Yeah.
1: You know, uh maybe it's not possible to have two phones for your two different things, but
0: <laughs> Yeah, you know, actually though, these days it is more and more possible. It really mm-hmm. is. You could just keep an old phone around or something like that. We have done that in the past. Right.
1: But depending on what you're doing, you don't want to have to have those two phones on you all the time depending which yeah. one you want. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, very true. Uh, Interesting article. Uh, You can find a link to it in the show notes. It's from uh, Motherboard, a.k.a. Vice, and uh, you know what? Like Alan said, they're motivated to protect their identity, and some good stuff in there. Changing the alias one is hard, but I bet you that is a really good one.
1: Uh, Yeah, it really depends. And then, well, the other one is just when you're choosing your username for your profile that's not your personal one or whatever, is you might want to make sure it doesn't Say something about you that's obvious that will uh, can be used later to make like, the connection. Uh, like, see,
0: like, we have uh, uh, somebody who I'm a I'm a big fan of in our in our chat room, Micro89. He's a great participator in our subreddits. Often grabs links all the time, but see, I look at that I look at that username and I think, was he born in 1989? Do I now know his birth date? Like, if is that one more bit of information I know by Micro89? Right.
1: Uh, well it's other ones we've seen where uh they've done social media studies and to figure out that two different Twitter handles were the same person or something. Uh and you know, sometimes it's just obvious after if if you know a person very well, you can look at a Twitter handle and be like, that's probably them. That you know, I can see where all these correlations come together. Or right,
0: exactly. Uh all right, Alan. Well let me tell you a little about something else that's pretty great. That's Ting. Go to techsnap.ting.com to get $25 off your first device or $25 in service credits if you bring your own device. And you might be able to. Ting has a CDMA and GSM network, but let me tell you about the Ting secret sauce. You only pay for what you use. Putting that out there. That's not my idea either. They came up with that. Isn't that brilliant? You only pay for what you use. It's $6 a month for the phone line, and then it's your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes and you just pay for what you use. Go to techsnap.ting.com to find out more. In fact, click how much would you save right there in the middle of their page. So I was just kind of roughballing this here, thinking about uh, an old AT&T plan I had a couple of years ago. Uh, 100 minutes, you know, roughly a month, because uh, I much prefer to use Telegram or Google Hangouts or or even, you know, FaceTime if, if it's an Internet phone. Uh, so 100 minutes used. About text messages, four or so. Because I get some automated things, for, but for the most part, all my messages come in over again, Telegram or Hangouts or Google Voice. And then megabytes used. That's where uh, I, this fluctuates a lot depending on how Wi-Fi savvy I am. But I put two gigabytes in there because I, you know, I pretty much do all my podcast downloading, all my photo backups and all that stuff on Wi-Fi. About 120 bucks before taxes. I think after taxes, like 140 Anyways, you click Calculate Savings on the Ting website. This is how much you put in, right? See what you would save. In two years, you would save $1,800 by switching to Ting. And you can go in there and play with the different numbers and see how much you would save. Isn't that nuts? TechSnap.ting.com. Go there to start. Go check them out. I, and by the
1: way... Well, what's really nuts is that every anybody does it the other way still.
0: <laughs> yes, I know. I know. I know. I know. Alan, I, if, you are at av, if you are... I'm sure, Alan, I'm sure you probably... This is probably like a morning uh, stop for you, the Ting blog. But uh, I, I do like to recommend that uh, you follow this from time to time. Go to TechSnap.ting.com so that way we get credit for your visit and you're supporting our show. And that's nice. You know, you can just do that just to support the show. And then you can go check out their blog. I don't know, but depending on when you're watching this, if it's going to be too late. But I'm really excited. They're doing a Nexus 5X giveaway. You just, like, I mean, that would be so great. I would love a Nexus 5X right now. So you can find out more by going to the techsnap.ting.com uh, URL. And then click around. And you'll find the blog at the top of their website. Also, check out the, uh, right now they have the LG Flex 2 uh, for a great price. That's a really nice phone. For $212, no contract, no early termination fee. You only pay for what you use. The phones are unlocked. You own them like a real device. $212 for a no-contract phone. Nice Android no-contract phone, $212. For the LG G-Flex 2. Oh yeah, they got all the great devices including SIM cards and all the high-end devices. You can go check it out. Just visit techsnap.ting.com, go see mobile that really makes sense with super passionate customer service, CDMA and GSM network. And I didn't even get a chance to tell you about how crazy great their control panel is. TechSnap.ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. TechSnap.ting.com. And thanks to everybody out there who supports the show by visiting at URL. So, Alan, I don't know if we know the title yet, but episode 115 of the BSD Now program comes out this week. And rumor yes. has it there's a pretty good interview in there.
1: Yes, uh, we have an interview with uh not gonna be able to pronounce his last I name. I was looking uh, at that too. But he he's <laughs> uh, working on the TCP stack in FreeBSD and implementing some of the new RFCs and uh, lots of interesting stuff coming there. Very cool. You know, the uh, the best uh, tcp ISP stack in the world is going to get even better. Oh,
0: I love it! Check it out in uh, BSD episode one hundred and fifteen. You can go get that in high definition, and then you get even more Alan Jude right about as this show is wrapping up. I bet if you go get it, or oh, you're probably already pro. And just subscribe to the rss feed i'm going to give a plug too to the rover log i have no idea what i'm recording as i'm on the road but there'll probably be something at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash rover plus there's about well a baker's dozen plus one additional rover logs you can check if you haven't seen them yet but with the news all done that means it's time for the tech snap feedback Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at com, or pop in that contact link at the top of the Jupyter Broadcasting website or thread in our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. And our first email comes in from BitShifter about authenticated and encrypted DNS. He says, I'm not sure if you've covered it in the past, but I'd like to hear your thoughts on DNS encryption and or authentication implementations. It sounds like DNSSEC is for authentication, so can you verify the DNS response hasn't been tampered with? Is that accurate? Is that what DNSSEC does? Crypt seems more like encryption of the query and response DNS message which is what I'm the most interested in. It doesn't seem like it's that widespread standard, though, and I'm not sure the best way to use it or something that accomplishes the same task. I use OpenDNS for my DNS provider, but when I make DNS queries to them, the traffic still passes through Comcast's routing equipment. If, Com- if Comcast really wanted to, they could log and or alter my DNS queries and responses since it's all unencrypted and, un- and unauthenticated traffic. What is the best way around this? Do you guys use anything to serve this purpose? I use PFSense. For my router and firewall, and you can use pfSense to be set up to do something like this? Thanks for any light you can shed on the topic. So, Alan, what do you think for Bit here?
1: Okay, so uh, DNSSEC is yes for the authentication part. Basically, you give the public key to your domain registrar, and they include it in the DNS glue record. And basically, the top level, the dot top level domain, is signed. Ah, uh, with a certificate that's preceded to DNS servers, whatever, and then .com is signed, and then your domain, in this case, if you publish a public key, it is signed, and then you know if the resulting query is not uh, signed with the private key that corresponds to the public key that is posted, then uh, the resolvers can reject it. The biggest problem here is means if you make a tiny mistake, then all of a sudden your DNS doesn't work, uh, and this has caused people enough headache that some people have just decided not to do it for now. Uh, But, so yes, DNSSEC doesn't hide the content of the DNS queries, it just uh, basically signs them so you can prove that it actually came from the right person. So that, you know, somebody can't pretend to be Google by spoofing their DNS. Uh, Then DNSCrypt is an unofficial way of just encrypting the DNS queries between you and some other resolver so that Comcast can't see what you're looking up. Uh, and there's a tutorial on how to use DNS Crypt on the BSD Now website.
0: Yes, and there is also one on the ArchWiki. I have not set it up myself either. And there is one also on web updates for Ubuntu. Mm. You I'll play with that? All right, Alan, next email comes in from Eric. And Eric has a question about email spoofing. He says, Hey guys, I was wondering if you all could go over how email spoofing works. Under what conditions can you send as someone else's email address? If a company publishes a bunch of their employees' email addresses on their public website, what is stopping me from sending an attachment with malicious code to every employee address I can find pretending to be their CEO's email address? Thanks for making the tech the best tech podcast in the verse.
1: Eric. Uh, so uh, email has no protection against spoofing at all.
0: What about uh, using something like uh, you know reverse lookup and DNS to to verify? Right.
1: So there's things like the Sender Policy Framework and DKIM uh, domain keys that can help prevent it, but they don't actually prevent it. Um. So yeah. So basically, in the SMTP protocol, you can literally just, uh, you know, type whatever email address you want in the from part, and it will accept it. Uh, now. Spam prevention measures will flag it if, you know, if you own the real domain, then you can set what's called a center policy framework or SPF record to say any emails actually sent by us will always come from these IP addresses or something like that. Mm -hmm. And if they ever don't, then the SPF has a policy of saying, accept it anyway, you know, raise a flag about it, but don't block Mm -hmm. it or always block anything that's not from the list or from this list of IP addresses. And then DKIM goes further, which basically in a DNS record, you publish a public key and all outgoing emails will be signed with that key. And if they're not, then it's fake. Uh, and you know that's what we do at Scale Engine. We have DKIM set up. But that's mostly just because it helps our emails not get blocked as spam by Google. But yes, in general, you can send email as anyone. Okay. It's pretty easy all uh, right the hard part is That's that you true. can't actually get the reply so now you, have to, you know you can set a reply to or convince them to click on a link or whatever
0: there are some some mail clients some spam clients will be like this wasn't sent from the domain that is in the from address and but things like again
1: that. that relies on the domain that is being spoofed having set up spf or something
0: yeah all right mike writes in uh do end users really need public ips he says ip4 ipv4 r- addresses are running out Uh, And ISPs could treat their customers as IT departments treat their enterprises. Every user in a big company can browse the Internet, use applications on their phones, use the Internet of Things devices, watch TV, use SSH, use Skype. Well, everything that IT hasn't blocked. The enterprise has only one external ip 4 address to accomplish this. On internal networks, they use the 10.0.0 IP range, for example. What are the benefits of households having public IP addresses and not some sort of static NAT? Unless users run some sort of server, why are I, why don't ISPs just give them all 10.0000 000 IPs for their customers? Thanks for the insights. Regards, Mike.
1: Right. So they do have what's called carrier-grade NAT uh, that does exactly that, and a lot of phones and stuff use it because you know phones all have IP addresses now, and uh, there aren't that many IP addresses left. Um, there are some problems with it. Obviously, you know, Skype works from behind NAT, but not so well if both people are behind NAT, right? And that's why Chris and I are both set up to not be so that we get this nice, shiny connection. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, you get serious problems that way. Um, so, I don't know, if, if I was stuck behind carrier grade NAT, I would be upset.
0: I guess the, the short answer is, there's just a lot of things that are... The
1: internet wasn't meant to work that way. Yeah, there's just a lot does, of things I don't expect that. But, mm-hmm. yeah. A lot of things will surprisingly not work as well.
0: Uh, and that, he also seems like he's coming at it from the perspective of somebody who's grown up in a, with a generation of NAT.
1: <laughs> yes, so I, part of that is that, you know, I remember having a direct public IP address for a long time without mm-hmm. ever having that. Even yeah. even in college when I got broadband, we had a PPPoE set up. So that meant, even though I had three computers, we didn't share one internet connection via the router. We each dialed out uh, over PPPoE to the... Phone company separately, mm-hmm. and so it meant that we each got a public IP address, which made gaming much. Yes. you know, we didn't have to deal with try to figure out how to port forward the right port to play Counter Strike. Uh, we all just had public IP addresses, yeah. and it was great.
0: Even my printer and had a public IP address. It was so glorious. Yeah. It was beautiful.
1: So um, the other problem with carrier grade NAT is that those machines can, you know, the machine that's doing the NATting you know the little home router you have is awfully small and can only handle so much traffic Mm -hmm. well just because your ISP has carrier grade net doesn't mean they spent very much money on it so it can actually slow things down a lot Mm, and it breaks a lot of things like FTP doesn't work so well oftentimes and a bunch of other things Um, so yes that exists there are ISPs that use it and I'm not sure there are any users that actually appreciate it.
0: Yeah, if you're doing like web browsing, email, and instant messaging, it's generally okay. You start doing video calls, streaming, things like that, it starts to become less ideal. Yeah. For that,
1: at that scale. Uh, but, and also he mentioned all that uh, even enterprise NAT for like an office most times has more than one external IP address because eventually you run out of ports. You know, you can only have so many connections going out of each IP and you then have to use multiple. And that can lead to really interesting things where, you know, subsequent visits to similar websites mean that you hit it with different IP addresses.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. And
1: that can cause all kinds of weirdness yes. as well. Yes.
0: All right. Israel writes in with a ZFS question of the week. He says, long time listener to the show. Keep up the great work. I have two questions. Number one, I'm thinking about building a file server similar to the Black... The, the Backblaze storage pod, so similar to that, uh, it had 45 hard drives. The original design, they used three 15 hard drives uh, in a RAID 6 array with LVM on top of it. If I use ZFS, could I somehow use a bucket of 39 disks with six spares as in the original design? And number question number two, is there a similar solution for Linux networks or for central users in security management like Active
1: Directory in Windows? Thanks, Israel. Uh, so I don't know why he would want to use spares. If three 15 hard drive RAID six arrays with LVM, uh, you'd be better off with more smaller vdevs. So if you have 45 drives, uh, then I would go with you know a bunch of sets, you know, bunch of sets of five or something to that effect. Uh, RAID Z1s, or if you want to do Z2s, you could wiggle it some other way, uh, and then maybe have a couple of spares. But spares are mostly wasted, so you're better off using slots if you're going to pay for the hard drives you might as well use them Mm. Uh, so you could do that but I wouldn't recommend stripes uh, 15 wide I would definitely cut that back Uh, so you know on my machine with 36 drives I did 6 sets of 6 and so you could you know fudge those numbers around a little bit to whatever works best for you but uh, 6 spares is a lot of spares
0: and to his question about Active Directory, uh, ah, you know... There's LDAP. Yeah, there's like an Apache directory. directory. Apache directory okay. is like set up with the, uh, you know, ready to go for this. Um, and then you can accomplish a lot of the management stuff with things like Puppet or Chef. You know, you can, there's, a, there's a lot of ways to skin that particular cat. But they, I,
1: I do know that you know, <coughs> in the previously cluster, they use Kerberos and yeah. LDAP to, to basically have one set of logins that work on a bunch of machines and so on. There are also
0: Linux shops that just use Samba
1: uh you can do samba and and emulate active directory yeah. um but yeah uh, ldap and what's red hat's version of that called they have
0: right? the fedora directory server i don't know what they call it now yeah. though
1: it's called something like the fedora directory server yeah yeah and,
0: yeah. and uh, that there that, are similar solutions that see so basically you there are several different open source projects you can put together to accomplish that that will give you more flexibility but there's not one like you go turn this thing, and you go run this this wizard. And now it's a domain controller, and then you go run this other wizard. Now it's doing the domain. There's nothing quite like, like that. But uh, good question, Israel, and good luck. Mm. If you'd like to send in your emails, go to TechSnap, or sorry, go to JupiterBroadcasting.com, and on the contact link, you can choose TechSnap from the drop down, or you just email us directly TechSnap at JupiterBroadcasting.com. We'd love to get your SysAdmin questions, hardware, storage, security, networking, performance, troubleshooting, all of that. We love it techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or use the contact form. But with the uh, feedback all done, well, guess what? That means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's that crazy music means. Now, the round for stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still want to give you some links to follow up on your own after the show. Some of these links came from our incredibly powerful subreddit that changes worlds over at techsnap.reddit.com. And our first story comes from that subreddit. It's about Vodafone, and they say that hackers have broken to nearly 2,000 customer accounts this week. You know, no bigs. Happened on Saturday.
1: Well, in particular, uh, their point there is that they got into those accounts on the first try. Mm. Uh, So they didn't compromise something at Vodafone. They just showed up at Vodafone's website with a list of accounts and passwords and just walked in. Uh, so the uh, implication here is that they managed to get a list of email addresses and passwords from somewhere else. Likely these were ones that people uh, shared the username and password with some other site that got hacked. Yeah. And, uh, you know, maybe it was the talk talk. I don't know. Uh, oh, but, interesting. Yeah. Uh, you know, they just showed up with this list of username and passwords and walked in. I'm guessing Vodafone discovered it because of the... Uh, they hopefully have some kind of trigger for when a bunch of accounts log in with the same IP address or from the failed logins from, you know, obviously the people whose uh, e- email address and password got compromised somewhere else that didn't use the same password at Photophone, they wouldn't have got in on those ones, but it would have set off the alarm of, oh, there's suddenly this big spike in failed login attempts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if people just stopped reusing passwords, this wouldn't happen. Yes.
0: Uh, all right, the FBI says, if you get struck with ransomware... You might just be better off paying the ransom. Don't bother calling the FBI. They're sick of hearing about it. They're sick of it.
1: Well, it's more that, in particular, the FBI was talking about certain uh, ransomware is so good that if you want your files back, the only way to do that is to pay. Uh, you know, don't count on the FBI being able to arrest the guy and get your secret key back or something.
0: Right, which is honestly makes a lot of sense. And honestly, it's really in the FBI's best interest right now to let everybody know what a big boogeyman encryption is because they're also pleading to get backdoors built into encryption. hmm.
1: Uh, Well, yes, in this particular case, they're like, oh, if we just had backdoors and encryption, then we would be able to get your files back for you.
0: (laughs) Hmm. Uh, Now, speaking of getting your files back, Coinvault and Bitcryptor ransomware victims can now recover their files for free, thanks to Dutch law enforcement officials,
1: right? Yes. Uh, So the Dutch law enforcement officials seized the command and control server for those ransomwares. And uh, uh, Kaspersky Labs got uh, the data from the Dutch and was able to capture the 14,000 decryption keys that were stored on that server and made them available (laughs) so that uh, people can decrypt their files.
0: Yay! There you go. So, the FBI says you're screwed unless it's one of those. Yeah. Then you're okay. All right, Alan. Next story. A 25 GPU cluster cracks every standard Windows password in about six hours.
1: Yeah. So, this one is uh, so they basically set up five machines with, you know, eight radions in each one uh, and They use it uh, with, um, you know, the OpenCL and uh, a new version of that that allows you to spread it across multiple machines. uh, And they use that to crack passwords. They're able to crack every eight-letter NTLM password, uh, even including, like, spaces and special characters, uh, in about six hours. Or 350 billion guesses per second. Uh, NTLM is the newer hasher, hashing algorithm that was added in Windows 2003 uh, to replace the older LM hash, where you could get uh, where each password was uh, your password could only be up to 14 characters, and even then it was actually two separate seven-character passwords. So when you were brute forcing, you could brute force both halves at the same time, and meant that you could get most passwords in a couple of minutes on a slow laptop like 10 years ago. Mm. Uh, so NTLM was the stronger one, but even now, every 8-character password in 6 hours we're using this uh, 25 GPUs. Uh, so a couple of things. Windows needs a better password hashing algorithm, mm-hmm. uh, and people need to use longer than 8-character passwords on Windows. <laughs> uh, what's interesting is that using this framework, uh, they can crack 350 million uh, NTLM hashes per second. But uh, when it comes to doing bcrypt, they can do only 71,000 guesses per second. Or uh, SHA-512 crypt is 364,000 guesses per second. Hmm. A couple of reasons. First of all, both of those are designed uh, with, uh, rather than using just a SHA-512, which we know video cards can do a lot of SHA-256s per second, Uh, SHA-256 crypt and SHA-512 crypt are specifically designed to be slow. Right? Whereas SHA-512 is designed to be really fast. But SHA-512 crypt is, let's do it 10,000 times so it's slower. Right. Um, and Bcrypt... Uh, so for both of these, the other nice thing about Bcrypt and SHA-512 crypt is they have a, a tweak, a tunable. And you can just dial it up. Uh, with Bcrypt, uh, it's uh, exponential. So if uh, you start with, say, a default of like 8, if you do it to 9, it is now... 10 times, uh, it's logarithmic, so 10 times uh, more complicated. Uh, last time I tested it, a single core of a Core 2 quad machine mm-hmm. at, you know, like 2.7 gigahertz or something took over a minute to do a 13 hardness setting. Mm. Whereas, you know, four hardness setting it could do in .001 seconds or something like that. Uh, so you know that's a minute per hash. so you really get the guesses to second to be less than one uh, if you turn it up high enough and then uh, sha five uh, sha two fifty six crypt, the default I think is ten thousand and you can just in the hash set it to whatever you want. so we can just keep dialing it up. you know if 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 we decide that three hundred and sixty five hashes per second uh, or three hundred and sixty five thousand hashes per second with the number of GPUs you could buy with X budget is too fast. We just turn it up and use a higher one, and now we have slowed them down. Hmm. Uh, they also on the page they have a link to their slides where they did a presentation about it, and they list which video cards. I think they have ten seventy-nine nineties, four double uh, sixty-nine nineties, and then you know six double fifty-nine nineties, and a couple other cards. Uh, sounds very similar to the Bitcoin rig that I had back <laughs> a, a couple <laughs> years ago, uh, which had like a Two fifty nine 5990s and a sixty-nine seventy mm-hmm. with like the the BIOS reflash to think it was a sixty nine ninety and mm-hmm. I remember that. Cook itself, um in 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 a fancy chassis in a rack and in a data center where it was cool. But um yeah.
0: yeah. Interesting. All right. Well this next story is a great one because it shows you how bad web applications can affect the security of cars.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: This is over at foxglovesecurity.com. And then he says, after publishing this post, it came to our attention that another an, a, other number of researchers have identified and reported the same exact vulnerability, but it still took over a year for it to be fixed. Uh, so, Alan, did you, did you grok with what this, was, what this pl- what post is about?
1: Uh, it's mostly just a, uh, a bunch of different uh, exploit types mm-hmm. and how they actually apply to cars. Uh, so, you know, if you have XML... Um, there's an XML uh, XXE. I forget what that stands for off the top of my head, but basically it means you stick something in XML and it causes it to read a different XML. Um, internal entity injection, or XXE. <laughs> okay. Basically, you you lay out the XML a certain way and it does things it's not supposed to. And well, if your car consumes XML, it's possibly going to you know be able to use this. Ah, so here's one they show an example where you can basically make it suck in an extra file off the disk on the right. the, the machine in the car. And interpret it as XML, and maybe it causes it to execute stuff. You're not. It's not supposed to, right? And so, uh, in this example, they had. Let's uh, take like another look at the request made by the car application mm-hmm. and that the XAC payloaded inserted in the request might look like, and then basically because the car is just going to a website over HTTP, not HTTPS, and making a request and expecting XML in response. You could just do a man-in-the-middle attack and cause the car to receive this bad XML and right explode. <laughs>
0: explode, <laughs> or who knows what software. I mean, it's going to be a treacherous slope. We're going to we're about to start climbing on this.
1: Yeah, and basically because a lot of these are just you know the the stuff in the entertainment system in the car is literally just consuming web services. You know, a lot of the typical attacks you would do against a web application will work against the car. Right, that's the main point.
0: Well. PageFlare had kind of a rough Halloween. They had a Halloween security breach, they're reporting.
1: Yes. Uh, So PageFlare makes an analytics thing, kind of like Google Analytics, but different somehow. I don't know. Anyway. Uh, And they got a spear phishing email. So someone high up in the corporation somewhere uh, got a phishing email and they clicked the link and they went through and they were compromised uh, and it allowed the attacker to take over their email account. Then the attacker with that... uh, managed to go to the CDN that hosts their mm. JavaScript files mm. and reset the password. Uh, and then, use it because he had, they had the, the CEO's email account or whatever, I don't know if it was the CEO, it was somebody high up. But they had an email account that was part of the reset, they got the new password, it didn't matter that, you know, the company was using a very long password stored in like they don't mention how, but something like the team version of, of um, LastPass, hmm. where you can allow multiple people to have access to it. But They securely stored their really long password, but that didn't help because the email account was compromised and they just reset the password. <laughs> uh, so then they went into the CDN and modified uh, DNS. some things and basically, well they modified where the CDN pulled files from to make it pull uh, malware instead of the regular JavaScript for the analytics app. Hmm. And that uh, caused anybody who went to the website of somebody that uses PageFair to get the uh, to get the malware instead. Hmm. What a and mess. it took them a while to fix it.
0: What a mess. Speaking. So
1: uh, now they've hooked up two-factor authentication on their email accounts and on their CDN account.
0: Speaking of uh, of messiness, Alan, did you see that this malware that uh, deletes your Chrome browser and then replaces it with a fake one that doesn't quite look right, but it's close enough? <laughs> yeah, it's a new malware out there disguising itself as Google Chrome to hijack computer systems of users. The malware serves you its own intrusive ads and sells your activity to third parties. Researchers at Malwarebytes state that this is malware that deletes Google Chrome, and replaces it by installing itself, and sets it as the default browser. <laughs> also it says itself as the default viewer for jpeg gifs pdfs and of course all other web links it's actually the efast web browser that looks just like google chrome it's based on the google chromium project so it behaves about the same as well <laughs> what a mess all right alan tell us about this new software malware or this new malware that almost sounds like a uh, like a food
1: dish <laughs> yeah so it's uh basically a type of Banking malware that's targeting. Uh, so it's a novel malware family using tactics, techniques, and procedures from multiple malware families like uh, Shiz, Zeus, and Drydex, which are mostly banking targeted malwares. Mm. Uh, noteworthy of Shifu is a custom application or as custom API that is used to control the various aspects of the malware and report the results to an API accession backend controlled by the attacker. Mm. It also has an Apache HTTP server, uh, which is installed and used by Shafu to communicate the attackers' commands to the command and control server. Uh, so, so far, they know it mostly targets uh, banks uh, in the UK and Japan, like Adam and Company, uh, Allied Irish Bank, Bank of Scotland, Barclays, um, HSBC, Lloyd's Bank, NatWest, mm. you know, Royal mm-hmm. Bank of Scotland, etc iSight partners analyzed numerous samples of the malware, uh, which recently have been called the Shifu, but previously had been called Power Agent because it creates a Windows registry keys that calls it Intel Power Agent 6. So it might be trying to masquerade as Intel software. Uh, the malware shares many similarities with other known banking trojans like Zeus and Drydex. Uh, like many malware families created uh, after the emergence of Zeus, there are a blend of techniques and uh, Different from different families, but the malware uses several methods to evade analysis and frustrate researchers. When first launched, the malware uh, uses a loader to drop, install, and patch the core payload prior to execution. If the payload is run in a standalone uh, or run as a standalone application, it will appear corrupted since the loader patches several payload parts during installation. Uh, it also has the capability uh, to blacklist applications such as other bots, antivirus software and research tool. The malware uses a CRC hash from, uh, for any application that is blacklisted or whitelisted, mm. and they'll cover more on that later. Clever for, yeah in the article, uh, but it also detects when it's running a VM and things like that. Uh, in addition to the noted blacklist, the loader has a separate application blacklist check that will immediately end execution of the malware if a listed application is detected. And additionally, the loader will check the CRC hash of itself uh, and, if found, will bypass any virtual machine detection routines. Uh, this check is possibly used for testing purposes and the hash is based on the name of a development copy uh, to prevent the malware from termina- terminating as a result of running in a VM. Hmm. So it has VM detection, but it also has a way around the VM detection so that when the developer was making the malware, they could run it in the VM.
0: <laughs> right, Exactly.
1: Uh, The loader will also check to see if a smart card reader is attached to the infected machine and if detected will bypass any other VM detection routines. This is possibly because of the presence of smart card reader signifies a physical machine rather than a VM. In particular, some people that are very paranoid about their banking will do their banking in a VM. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if they have a smart card reader, which is another thing that only people that are dealing with large amounts of money will have, then we'll... assume they're not a researcher and try to steal their money anyway. Uh, It says, uh, Shefu also uses several CRC hash lists to determine uh, which uh, branching functionality to use, uh, such as a list of web browsers that will hook Winsock APIs if found to monitor network traffic, specific domains or hashes that initiate uh, CRC communications, the name and hash for the HTTP server, uh, point of sales process names and hashes, uh, and also, looks for Bitcoin wallets. Nice. So,
0: quite a bit of interesting stuff. <laughs> Alan, that is very interesting. We can break that thing down. isaiapartners.com has the whole write up. Yep. That's just scratching the surface.
1: Wow. Yeah. They have uh, things you can look for, uh, hashes, you know, all the stuff you might need uh, to set up uh, your own blacklisting to hope that this doesn't run on your machines. Mm.
0: Uh, hey, here's a follow-up story. Uh, remember we talked about uh, the people who are willing to pay a bounty to jailbreak iOS 9? Mm-hmm. Well, someone won a million-dollar bounty for the latest iOS 9 jailbreak, but we don't really get much about it. Yes, an unknown group of hackers sold a zero-day vulnerability to Zerodium. Is that how we say it?
1: Yep. And uh, uh, So this is million basically bucks. Vupen. So yes. Vupen paid them a million dollars so that Vupen can keep the, the zero-day secret and sell it to governments.
0: Wow. Well, and now you know what? Now that's going to make people just fight so figure it out and release if, it online. if
1: we knew a little more about what the vulnerability was, in the future when we see it being used in the wild, we could tell, oh, that's the one that these guys sold to Vupen. But we have no details, so it'll be harder. But you know, if at some point in the future we hear about a zero day being used, especially maybe by a government, we will uh, um, be able to surmise that it might have been the one mm-hmm. uh, that was sold they to bought. Vupen. Yeah
0: unless somebody on the web publishes one similar to it and says, screw you for charging a million dollars. But uh, speaking of uh, government uh, backdoors that they buy and spend good money for, top German official was infected by highly sophisticated malware with some NSA
1: ties. Yes, apparently it was the uh, Regan malware, and uh, you know, there have been some reports that it might be tied to the NSA.
0: Yes, I think we heard some speculation
1: about that recently. Mm-hmm. In
0: 1998, one rogue worm shut down 10% of the internet. I caught this one on the subreddit yes. this week. This so, is great.
1: Uh, this is just the anniversary because it was November 3rd of 1988 and it's now just after November 3rd of 2015. Uh, But yes, it was basically the first big internet worm. Uh, You know, it was originally written just to kind of see how many machines are out there and it did some of the Mm -hmm. obvious things we still see today, like guess the common passwords for email addresses, like the person's last name spelled backwards. Yeah, it was... A bunch of things like that. It
0: hit schools kind of hard. Mm-hmm.
1: Because, you know... They tended to have even worse passwords, but uh, anything that any place that had a big concentration of users, it clogged up all the email servers and uh, caused emails not to work so well for quite a while. Uh, it was interesting that, so he, he let it out there to attack. Uh, well, a couple of things. First of all, uh, the when he wrote it, he was like 20-something, I think, uh, and his dad was a security researcher for the government. And basically, he used information he got from his dad's research to write the <laughs> exploit. Then uh, let it out there. And then when it started breaking the internet, he was like, oh, crap. So he told a friend, here's the instructions how to disable, like, to remove the virus. Uh, please post these anonymously to Usenet, which was basically like the equivalent of mailing lists and forums uh, back then. Um, but because... Everything was going so haywire, nobody found the instructions on how to remove it until days after people had already figured it out for themselves. And, you know, IT people all over the world were working together to solve this problem. Because uh, back then, there were only about 66,000 machines on the internet, or <laughs> 60,000 machines on the wow. internet. Wow. Wow. Does
0: that make you feel old? A little bit.
1: I was four at the time. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> All right, Alan. Well, so this. I didn't ne- even know what a computer was yet.
0: This next story is kind of hard to wrap your brain around, but uh, a new paper uh, by the guy behind Cubes OS comes out saying that he just might as well consider x86 harmful, and he's released a research paper in PDF and EPUB. Well,
1: ah, like, uh, the title is a pun. Uh, this comes back to the original one, Go uh, GoTo considered harmful. Yes. Yeah. Right. But this one is x86 considered harmful. In particular, it talks about the management engine stuff that Intel's incorporated into all their mm-hmm. processors, which mm-hmm. is like the basis of like VPro and AMT, which basically allows the computer to be remotely controlled yeah. over the network.
0: Intel ME, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. M E is a management engine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he had previously done some research on how to use uh, VTD to possibly secure the computer against attack of a a persistent rootkit that got into the management engine. Uh, But basically this is just a paper where he talks about all the possible problems with x86, including problems with the BIOS and booting and EFI and all the different possible things. And then it's mostly just a precursor to his second paper, which will come out, which will actually talk about the uh, security implications of the management engine stuff. But it looks like an interesting paper, yeah. so I linked it up here.
0: Very good. All right, let me warn you about Hurricane LTE. <laughs> Don't let Wi-Fi get blown away because a storm is brewing over the use of 5.8 gigahertz unlicensed
1: radio yes. spectrum. So uh, Qualcomm, which is one of the companies that makes chips that uh, phones use, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. is proposing LTE-U, which is to use the unlicensed or uncontrolled part of the spectrum that we currently use for you know 5 gigahertz Wi-Fi and, and cordless phones and stuff. Uh, for LTE, to basically give phones more bandwidth. Uh, however, people like Google and other places say that will most likely disrupt Wi-Fi and cause problems. Yeah, you
0: got big towers so, broadcasting on that same channel. Yeah. Frequencies. Uh,
1: and in general, we probably just don't want phone companies using any unlicensed spectrum. Yeah. Uh, and so Qualcomm did their tests, and in their lab, running LTEU didn't affect Wi-Fi. But then Google did tests, and they found that it did. And so basically the people for it say it doesn't break Wi-Fi. The people against it say it definitely does break Wi-Fi. <laughs> what we kind of need is some, you know, independent adjudicator to decide. But it seems in general that I don't know that we want our phones Yeah, jumping. and it sounds
0: like they're working on a before-talk technology, which uh, before transmitting or talking, a device must listen to the channel if it wants to, that it wants to transmit on and then make sure it wouldn't be interrupting anyone else if it immediately started transmitting itself. So like it checks first.
1: Yeah, but so LTEU will just only talk when there's no Wi-Fi around? Where where are you going to be where there's no Wi-Fi? Yeah, it doesn't yeah, that is very odd. Just yeah. to say where so this one. So there's going, already though. a problem with this f- with Wi-Fi. Um I forget which Wi-Fi channel it is, but there's a Wi-Fi channel that you can't use until you've listened on it for at least 60 seconds to make sure there's not a UK weather radar in range of you. <laughs> Uh, and that's one of the reasons why Wi-Fi can take a long time to connect. Because if you happen to end up on that channel, you have to sit there and wait and make sure that there's not a weather radar Love happening it. on that channel that's before brilliant. you can start transmitting on that channel. Um, and this is why we have the whole concept of licensed spectrum, right? The phone companies have this blocked up area of the spectrum that they can use and no one else can go in there and interfere. Mm-hmm. And then we have unlicensed for stuff for personal use. And you know, there's a reason why you're only allowed to transmit so many watts on the unlicensed spectrum is so right. that you can't disrupt people further away. Right. Uh, and I don't think that we should have the phone companies using the unlicensed spectrum for craziness. Preach it, brother. Preach it. I can it. understand why they would want it because buying licensed spectrum from yeah. the FCC can cost billions of, of dollars. Of course they want it.
0: If they want all the things. Of course they want it.
1: Right. But you know, maybe we shouldn't charge people billions of dollars for the spectrum, but
0: uh, speaking of billions of dollars, turns out storage costs billions of dollars. Microsoft just figured that one out, and they're dropping the unlimited OneDrive storage. This is the top story in the subreddit this week. Uh, the old one-terabyte limit is back, and free users get a big downgrade. Uh, the new blog post that talks about this uh, says that uh, you know on a, a small number of customers are using OneDrive to store entire backups of their PCs, large collections of movies and TV shows. Some had 75 terabytes of space. Uh, which is 14,000 times more they average than the average one, uh, OneDrive user. So they decided to lock this down. The company is removing the old uh, limits and some other plans as well and restructuring everything. Free OneDrive storage is going to be cut to uh, 5 gigabytes, and there's uh, some more bonuses that you can step up to, all the way up to 1 terabyte again, but terabyte is going to be the limit. Uh, free users with what 5 gigabytes of data will have a year after the change is made to reduce down to the 5 gigabyte level before data starts getting deleted.
1: Pretty nuts. Um, Yes. Well, this is the problem with anybody that tries to sell you unlimited storage. Yes. Uh, you know, there's no such thing as unlimited hard drives. So. <laughs> right. Uh, but the other um, interesting one there was, how did somebody upload seventy-five terabytes to? Like, I something? know, right? Like, can, you, can you? I remember one of those drives back in the past had side loading, where you could like give it a URL and it would mm-hmm. download directly to it, mm-hmm. and not. But, you know, that's that's the, it's like even with a terabyte is. You know how much internet do you have to be able to get that? Yeah. If you so you back up a terabyte of data to the Microsoft Cloud, you want to download it back. Well, hopefully you don't a have a bandwidth limit from your ISP of only downloading you know two hundred terabytes or two hundred gigabytes a month. Because yeah. then it's going to take you you know five months of not using the internet for anything else to download your data back. Yes. Uh, But also, how did you upload it there in the first place? Most people's internet connections are very asymmetric, where it's like, sure, you can have 100 megabits of download, but you only have two or four megabits of upload. Yes, I know, that's enough. So at that speed, do you know how long it would take to upload a terabyte?
0: (laughs) It'd have to be like doing it from a data center or something.
1: This is is why, you know, at Scale Engine, we have to have backups of everybody's videos, because, you know, if a customer has 10 terabytes of video, it would literally take them months to try to re-upload it all. All
0: right, Mr. Did you want to take the next story from the roundup?
1: Uh, Yep. So a new tool called Mm ZorSearch. So oftentimes malware uses uh, Zor or other types of obfuscation. So Zor is the basis of encryption. Uh, Basically you take the, uh, it's an exclusive or basically if you Zor a string with another string then it encrypts it. And as long as somebody doesn't know the string they can't get it back. Uh, The problem is that, you know, it only works if the block is the same size as the key, right? So your password has to be as long as all the text you want to encrypt. Otherwise, you have to reuse it, and that weakens it. Um, But a lot of malware will soar with just a number, like any, like 200, up to an 8-bit key, basically, Uh, which isn't very strong encryption, but it's enough so that the text doesn't look like text anymore. Uh, Or there's uh, RAL, which is uh, a way of, like, rotating the bits. So, like, you just shift all the bits over by a couple, and then, um, yeah, so with raw or roar, the encoded file has its bits rotated by a certain number of bits. So you just tweak all the numbers so they end up looking different. Or you have rot, uh, right? You know, everybody's familiar with rot13, where you just, uh, you know, A becomes a different letter, and B becomes mm. a different... You just, uh, you know, if A was 1 and B was 2, you just add... 13 to every letter and when you go over Z you just loop around back to A uh, and you know, that's the old like, Caesar cipher encryption. Uh, or shift where you just uh, you know, shift the bits to the right or left or whatever. Um, so these are very common in malware and other things to just hide information from plain sight. Not really encrypting it so much is just uh, a very simple way to find it. So Zorsearch is basically a brute force tool where you give it a file that's masked in one of these ways and it just goes through them in brute force. Because with Zor, if you're restricted to an 8-bit search space, there's only 256 possible keys. Or with RAW, there's only seven possible keys. And Rot has 26 possible keys and Shift has seven again. And so you can it could just go through them all and you know figure out what was in the file. Uh, so they also they have an example here of running it on like a text file. And you can see that it's looking for uh, certain characters and the how often they appear and so on to tell what's actually possibly in that hmm. file. Hmm. It's kind of so, kind so of a cool tool. Yeah. Uh, uh, I was always consider building something like this. Uh, back when uh, doing some kind of rot type encryption was a funny thing to do on IRC. <laughs> uh, I'm like she doesn't brute force all of them really quickly.
0: <laughs> Love it. Uh, okay, so we were talking about uh, web applications, popular ones that are vulnerable. Well, here's another one for you. How about vBulletin? A zero mm. day, a uh, zero day in vBulletin. Sorry, is comp- is making half a million websites uh, and form accounts vulnerable to compromise?
1: Yeah. So this is uh, what uh, um, Rapid7 says. It looks like in the SQL injection attack, although we don't have the details yet. Uh, but VBulletin versions between 5.14 and 5.19 are vulnerable. And the attack's already been used against VBulletin itself oh. and Foxit. And uh, so if you have an account at VBulletin because, say, you bought a copy of VBulletin for your website, yeah, uh, you will get a password reset email shortly uh, and your details have been compromised. Dang it. Uh, and more than likely, it means that you know they have a giant... Basically, by hacking VBulletin with it, they got a giant list of other V-Bulletin sites to go and attack.
0: <laughs> so I need to like, have a list of all of the sites and, and services we have covered on this show that I have been, that I have been involved in the, in the mm-hmm. hacking. It's ridiculous. Yes, uh,
1: You have V-Bulletin from the old Jupiter Force for. Oh, yeah,
0: I do. I do. Mm-hmm. I do. All right, Alan, well, that brings us to the end of the TechSnap program. Now, the roundup are links that are provided by our subreddit, so you can go submit them at techsnap.reddit.com, a great place for community discussion and questions as well. Speaking of questions, if you'd like to get them read on the show, go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and choose TechSnap from the dropdown. And by the way, did you know we do this show live? And we'd really like to have you here. We've been moving around a little bit, so attendance has dropped a little bit, and we should be kind of normalizing out uh, in the yep, next probably couple of weeks works. or so. Yeah. So jblive.tv is where you watch it. It happens at
1: uh, 1 p.m. Pacific, which is? 4 p.m. Eastern or 2100 UTC. Boom. Uh, because daylight savings time, uh, Europe changed earlier in the U.S., but that's all over now. We're back. It's yep. solid. 2100 it's all UTC. all
0: easy to understand. Again, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to get that converted to your local time zone. Last but not least, all the links to the stuff we talked about today in the show notes, go to jupiterbroadcasting, find this episode, scroll down past the download links. And while you're scrolling, you know, why not subscribe to the RSS feed? And then you get the show automatically. We have been going now for 240 episodes and never missed a week. So you can get the TechSnap magic every single week. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for tuning this week's episode of TechSnap. And we'll see you right back here next week.